Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. Poets have long used ekphrasis. The term refers to the verbal description of a piece of visual art and is used as a way to explore the deep complexity of representation, the relationship between the artist and her art, and as a means of making things legible, which may otherwise seem inexpressible. My guest today is Meta Dua Jones. She is herself a poet and a scholar of poetry. This year, she's also a fellow at the National Humanities Center, and she's working on a new project that explores the relationship between African-American poets and visual artists and the ways that their works speak to one another, thereby tracing and challenging our understandings of the African diaspora. Meta, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Tanya. Your project is titled Black Visionary Alchemy, How Poets and Artists Map Diaspora Memory. Yes. And you look at interactions and transformations between poems and images by black artists and scholars. Can you give us an example of an alchemical transformation that you examine and that you think is especially illustrative of the kinds of processes and transformations you're looking at? Certainly. So one, I just want to say that um, for those fans out there of alchemy, that we know that I love that you use the word transformation because if you think about its history of trying to take base materials and then transform them into whether it's gold or other more highly valued materials, that the example I'll give will take a base word that we know in context that shows the relationship that African-American poets have tried to use their poetry to take a base word, like the word boy, and turn it into something that is understood to be more fluid and more beautiful. So the example I have is the, a visual artist by the name of Simeon Shimon, who um, was based in New York. He was originally migrated um, from Russia as a child, but he was based in New York, and he also was a children's book illustrator and a commercial illustrator. One of his paintings, entitled Boy was included in June Jordan's 1969 children's book that was marketed for all adults called Who Look at Me. That painting is actually on the cover of the book, but when you look at it, it's an individual image, it's a portrait. And because the figure in the portrait, the face, the kind of angle of the cheeks, the the nose, the eyes, and the looking, and the cropped hair, It's not as clear, and the age of the face, that either this individual is a quote-unquote boy, one could read that image as someone who's actually a young man, or a young woman, an adolescent, or someone, it's not, it's definitely not a painting of someone who looks to be 12. But as we know, in the 1960s, 40s, and 30s, the phrase boy was often used in a derogatory way for adult men of African descent. And so the fact that June Jordan uses this painting and writes a line of verse affixed to this painting um, that says, look close, see me breathing, a black man, north and south, a man, right? In contrast to the title of this painting as boy, I argue, transforms the way we see the image. Of the multitude of artists and poets you could have examined or you could be looking at for this project, 
talk to us a little bit about the choices you made and why you chose the people you did for your analysis. Certainly. So I started in 1969, right at the, or 68, 69, right at the um, cusp and the heart of post-civil rights and then going into the black arts movement and so-called black power um, era of cultural nationalism all the way up to kind of 2018 in terms of the scope of the artists and writers I chose. I chose poets and writers and scholars, scholars as well, who specifically also had written memoirs. I believe that there's a relationship between the attempt to tell a story about the I that becomes a story about the we. The autobiographical I, like the letter I, but also the visual I, the looking I, right, um, is something that I believe enables us to better understand how people see themselves and tell the story of their lives, whether it's through words, image, or art. And I also chose visual artists in this project who use words and text in their painting. So for example, Glenn Ligon, who's very well known for, um, in some of his text paintings, literally taking language from well-known African-American classic canonical texts like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, right? And painting with those words in ways that make the work seem both abstract and personal at the same time. You've done extensive archival work for this project as well, in addition to reading the published texts that you're talking about. What can you tell us about where you've been and what kinds of sources you've looked for and maybe some of the things you've found? Oh, certainly. This excites me so much. One thing I'll say that is wonderful about being at the NHC specifically is that in addition to going to archives before coming here, the NHC is a marvelous intellectual place for helping you get material from archives um, here to continue the research. So I did a research fellowship at Harvard University Schlesinger Library, which holds the papers of not only June Jordan, like all of, like not every single paper of hers, but hundreds of box folders, as well as Shirley Graham Du Bois. Um, scholars may know her in terms of her own writing. She wrote a juvenile and um, adult literature and plays, but she's also known because she was the um, wife and life partner and comrade and work of W.E.B. Du Bois, sometimes um, somewhat better known, well-known in some um, literary or lay circles. That's one example of an archive. Emory University has Natasha Trethewey, the former U.S. Poet Laureate, um, and Mississippi Poet Laureate um, archives. I've gone there. Uh, the, I've been to Ghana because one part of my project specifically looks at poets and writers who track, and, and even scholars like Zadia Hartman, who track their experience of traveling to Ghana and to specifically uh, to the so-called slave, quote-unquote, some call them castles, some call them dungeons, um, and forts, and the way that they describe um, either lyrically, visually, or in narrative forms their, their experience of the memory of that particular source of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so what have I found... In June Jordan's archive at Harvard, one of the amazing things that I discovered were in her letters to the editor, her concerted efforts to insist on a diasporic frame for understanding 
black identity in terms of looking and visual art. So for example, there are letters where the editors and the young adult um, author Milton Meltzer, who collaborated with her early on in the project, both said to her, look, we want paintings by quote unquote the term at the time, Negroes. But she wanted to include paintings, for example, like Winslow Homer, well-known, right, American um, um, artist and watercolorist, uh, that were based on black Caribbean subjects in places like Bermuda or the Bahamas and was working hard in letters to insist on including those kinds of paintings to write about or Nathaniel Joycelyn's classic um, portrait of uh, Cinque, um, who was the leader of the Amistad Rebellion, a slave ship rebellion. So in one of her uh, letters, I discovered her what I call her art historical imagination, where she's making a case to include abstract as opposed to so-called figurative or representational art. Um, and the editors are, uh, the publishers and, um, and one of the editors at the, pre at the press, Thomas Crowell, two of them keep saying, well, you know, they really keep dissuading and discouraging her from using abstract art. And she was really, when I say art historical imagination, she was ahead of her time. She has letters where she's like, listen, Norman Lewis, who recently was in the New York Times for a retrospective that was done at his work, is like now a much better known um, abstract painter whose work was in the Metropolitan Museum of New York early on, right? But not as noticed or celebrated as more, as let's say an artist like Jacob Lawrence was at, at that time. Of the many geographies you consider, how do these locations and the people you look at and their work help us reconfigure our understanding of the African diaspora? What a beautiful question, and thank you for phrasing it that way. Locations, geography, reconfiguring. Um, I like thinking of the term remapping, as you notice in my title, in part because one of the locations that I consider is by a poet and memoirist um, and naturalist by the name of C. Sol, or C.S., as he publishes his book, Giscombe. Giscombe is a professor at the University of California at Berkeley, and I traveled to a small town um, in British Columbia called Giscombe, um, British Columbia, which is he and his own memoir and his, in his own travels um, went both to uh, different parts of British Columbia, specifically to that town and other places, to track the evidence of his paternal, like great, great, great ancestor who originally migrated, I believe, from Jamaica, um, uh, then to San Francisco, and then to um, Canada. And he used maps, actually, of the, the early incorporation in the early 19th and 18th centuries um, of British Columbia and of Vancouver and of Prince George Columbia to track and note where his ancestor's name was literally on the roads. And then he spliced, he made of art, right? Maps and cartography are their own geography of art. But he spliced those maps into lines of verse, right? So they're little cuts where the longitude and latitude portions where you can actually get placed in between verse where he's describing his travels. Um, other geographies include Jackie Kay, uh, a queer writer and novelist and playwright and poet who herself um, wrote a collection of poems and, uh, called The Adoption Papers that is also like memoir where she's telling um, in verse 
the story of her own um, adoption and her ancestry, um, her mixed race and mis mixed cultural ancestry. Her father was Nigerian. Um, and so, um, and then Bobby Sykes, a uh, writer and activist and memoirist who published three, a three-trilogy autobiography slash memoir um, and who um, was raised in Australia. So I'm trying to look at spaces, not just major metropoles, but Giscombe is a small sawmill town, for example. It's nowhere that you would go to on a tourist map but places that are not necessarily um, held or always m mapped within the black Atlantic paradigm that Paul Gilroy um, wrote about in his uh, canonical book that was most well-read and celebrated. I hope that helps speak to the question. That's great. How does your study reconfigure how we should think of blackness and gender? Oh, this is such a great question because I think of, and I'm not unique in this. There are scholars and artists and writers and humans who say this, and Jordan and other writers I study, Dion Brand, um, think of gender as being more fluid and more on a spectrum, that gender binaries and race binaries. Uh, June Jordan says in the beginning of Who Look at Me, who would paint a people black or white? And it's no coincidence that she includes, a, in addition to the painting I mentioned of Simeon Shinin's boy on the cover of the book, a photograph, an author photograph, on the back of that same book, in which she is seated in a posture um, and is wearing um, a top and a shirt that mirrors, if you look between the photograph and the painting, exactly the kind of posture, even down to like the white top of the color, the way the white light comes in, um, and, and the way the angle of her shoulders and her um, elbow um, are, it's similar to when you see the longer um, painting or the larger painting by Shimon to encourage us to think beyond just boy as the title paints it and girl or um, woman and man, but think about the way that gender is, as Judith Butler said, citational. It's about how we perform ways of dress, ways of looking, and what does that mean about changing the ways that we look at blackness. I've actually never met a black person. You're wearing a beautiful black sweater right now. I've never met anyone whose picture maps this audio mic for the podcast. I've met people of lots of different ethnicities and culture with deeply hued, beautiful brown or even purple, bluish brown skin. I've also never met a white person, right? I've met people whose colors and pictorial palettes range from peach to... And yet... My looking at visual artists who play with the color black abstractly or concretely enables me to think the way and think through the way these poets and artists and writers encourage us to try to really see and look at human beings beyond the stereotypes and the kind of blanket binaries of color and gender that tend to categorize and box us in instead of connect us. You yourself are a poet and you're a scholar, and a scholar of poetry as well. How has your own creative process been transformed by this particular project? It's been such a joyous and a challenging and a deeply enriching journey through my creative process as a poet in that um, when I've been in archives, sometimes like, uh, you know, some poets will say, I feel a poem coming on, but it's like literally poems erupt, and that doesn't mean that I don't still have to do the discipline of revising and crafting and then figuring out the form. My creative process has been transformed in that sometimes to better understand the writers and poets I'm studying, I handwrite out 
whole pages or whole poems, and I'll rewrite them um, verbatim multiple times to have the tactile relationship to their work to better understand how they create a line, how they enjam or carry over a line. Why do they use a question mark or not use a question mark at the end? And so that's a kind of looking that's both close reading, but it also is a looking that's craft reading for me as a poet myself. And so some of the project includes in between the kind of more conventionally, quote-unquote, scholarly analyses in my chapters, interstices, small intervals of poems that are based on images and artwork I've come across in my research. So one example would be the painting, which is an anonymous painting entitled The Slave Market. And in a talk I did here earlier at the NHC, I um, recited a poem that emerged from deep looking and close looking for a long time at that point where I played with the idea, the painful idea of looking at what it meant for black subjects to be looked at as opposed to the kind of pleasure of looking that sometimes we might take in a work of art, right? And so it's like thinking about the legacy of slavery where um, enslaved African people and their descendants were looked at and inspected as if they were cattle. And so that poem evolved in me saying, I long for you to stop looking. I long for you to stop looking and stop touching, right? And so it's a resistance against the look. So sometimes the poems that emerge out of my research end up pulling against the other forms of intellectual engagement that happen in the scholarly work. And and they do what a poem, I think, can and should do best. When I make any real dent with them at all that I feel good about, they surprise me. Mm-hmm. And listening to you recite the poetry was really powerful in a way that I think it probably wouldn't have been just reading it. Yes. And it was striking alongside the images that you were discussing. Yes, I think, thank you for saying that. I believe that there's been, and I'm not you can make this, there's a wealth of scholars from Bell Hooks to, we think about, oh goodness, Kimberly Juanita, Brown, and we think about, um, goodness, Nicholas Miserev, like who have talked about W.T. Mitchell, oh goodness, Nicole Fleetwood and Troubling Vision. There are a range of writers and scholars, Simone Brown and Dark Matters and uh, thinking about black blackness and surveillance, who have looked at looking, right? My way of looking through their work with this visual turn is not to say that listening no longer is important. It's that, um, and in fact, in some of the work that I look at, there's a, a, you think about Tina Camp, Listening to Images, is a work that really encourages to think about, can we hear an image just as well as see an image, right? What does it mean to ask of an image that it speak to us, right? Not just look back at us or like, you know, Elkin says, the object stares back. So, so yes, thank you for saying that. I feel like that... Um, the sound sensibility and poetry is something that can connect us deeper to our emotional intelligence and our emotional ability to connect to experience that sometimes without hearing a poem read aloud, it may, aloud, it may stay flattened. What is your hope for this work? We were talking uh, previously, and it's something... I would love for us to have 
a more democratic approach to looking at art. Partly why I was so excited about these writers and artists, most of them are not art historians. Or um, Terence Hayes, for example, actually is a, a you know, MacArthur winner and um, has won a number of writing prizes as a poet. Um, but he actually does draw and, and paint. And so there are some people, Clarence Major did that. But most of the writers um, do what Gwendolyn Brooks, the late poet um, and um, memoirist said, which is, See art is something that is a language one has to work towards, as opposed to words everyone may feel like, unless you're actually a practicing painter or an artist, that we all work with the words, but not everyone feels like that they know how to work with painting or sculpture or, or, um, um, or how to understand it if it's in art museums. My hope is that this kind of work encourages um, people from a broad range of classes, ethnicities, and culture to go to art museums, to feel that it's a home where they can look and see and see differently. I think in the wake of the former President Michelle and um, First Lady uh, Barack and Michelle Obama making the decision to choose African descendant and African American painters for their official portraits, gorgeous portraits, right, by Kehinde Wiley and Amy Sherrard, and that being the first time in the history of the federally funded, meaning everybody's tax dollars, National Portrait Gallery ever having these particular, not these artists, but African descendant or African American artists ever commissioned to do an official portrait for the gallery. If you think about the 200 year history of our presidency, um, is an important statement about who gets to make art, who has the right to say, we're invested in creating the images of how how we look and how others will look at us, which to me goes a long way to combating the negative racialized history of minstrelsy, for example, that demeaned images of black in so-called visual art. Maida, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tanya. It was wonderful to have a conversation with you here and great to be a fellow at the NHC. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.